Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. Now, we're continuing the discussion on why we study the word in the Bible. And we've been looking at several aspects of this in the last couple of weeks. And last week we ended with a discussion of connecting the words, rightly dividing the words. Timothy says we should study to show ourselves approved. A workman should uh, need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. Now, if the Bible speaks of rightly dividing, it means that we can wrongly divide it. So that's one of the reasons you come to Bible study. That's one of the reasons you come to Sunday service. To have the teachers help you to rightly connect the scriptures and rightly divide them. And of course, you have within you the ultimate teacher, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to us by God, by Jesus, to guide us, lead us, and direct us into all truth. And Holy Spirit is ever present to do that function. We just have to give leave for him to do it. And that's one of the reasons we urge you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you will have the full power of the Holy Spirit at your disposal. Not just the Holy Spirit that comes into us when we are born again. That's very important. What's super important in terms of being able to enjoy the full power of the Holy Spirit is to be filled. And we are commanded, that's one of the commands, which I'll talk about later. We are commanded to be filled. And it's that filling of the Holy Spirit that really enables us to live truly that victorious and overcoming life. Now, we connected some words last, some words we, collect, we connected some scriptures uh, last week, and I'm not going to review those, but we ended with connecting uh, God telling us through Apostle Paul to put on the whole armor of God. And we talked spe- specifically about Ephesians 6:17, which speaks of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I pointed out that that's the weapon that we're given in our assortment of armor the Holy Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. And I pointed out something that you don't hear uh, too much, and that is that this is one way the Holy Spirit helps us because the sword of the Spirit means just what it says. It is the sword of the Holy Spirit. And that's his way of helping us when we need defensive or offensive weaponry. And we use the illustration of how that word is applied by giving the illustration of Jesus in Luke 4. You don't have to go there. Luke 4, verses 1 through 13, where he is tempted by the devil. And each time the devil puts forth a temptation, he doesn't call down a legion of angels, summon down a bolt of lightning to strike the devil down. He quotes the word of God. He says, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he proceeds through the various temptations. And each time, the devil is defeated. And in verse 13, it says that after all of these temptations, 
the devil departed from him until an opportune time, meaning that he will come back and back again when he spots an opportune time. Now, if he's going to do that with Jesus, then guess what he's going to do with us? And guess what we do? We more than help him out. We give him opportune time <laughs> at every turn. And we do it really sometimes ignorantly. We don't really know that we're doing it. You give the devil opportune time when you are ignorant of the word and what the word says. You give the devil opportune time when you worry. You give the devil opportune time when you're fearful. You give the devil opportune time when you do not know the word of God that you can use as your, as your defense and offense. And we gave, gave some illustrations last week, such as if you're challenged with a health issue, you need to know that by his stripes you were healed and you are healed. And that's what you tell the devil. I tell the devil, I had to tell the devil that this morning. I woke up, I had a pain. Now I know none of you ever wake up and get a pain. <laughs> but to me, that's a fiery dart. When you get a sharp pain, to me, that's a good illustration of a fiery dart of the enemy. And I said, devil, you are a liar. By his stripes, I am healed. I am strong. I am strong. The word says, let the weak say I am strong. And that's what you do. When you're wounded like that and you feel weakness, let the weak say I am strong. And you are acting on the word and you're using a word as we're supposed to use it. Now, I ended the message last week quoting Apostle Price, and I'm going to read that again. Apostle Price says this, what makes God's powerful words work is not for us to talk or confess the negative circumstances. That is what we see, what we feel, and what we are experiencing, but rather confess God's remedy, God's cure for the situation, and his remedy is contained in his words. My God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So it doesn't mean that you don't need to get up and go to work. But if things are a bit tight, know that ultimately your needs will be supplied according to his riches by Christ Jesus. But you have to believe that. You have to act on it. And the Quakers have a, a saying that I like. See, it's one thing to pray about a situation and believe God is going to that's a wrong way to put it. When you believe that God is going to solve the issue for you, you're already not in faith. You have to believe that God has already solved the situation. But anyway, uh, the, uh, the, you know what, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I was making a point. I hope you got part of it. <laughs> because it's, just as quick as it came, quick as it went. <laughs> but anyway, we're, we're, we're talking about properly applying a word and that when we apply the word, we are acting in faith, as Apostle says. We confess God's cure for the situation instead of confessing the symptoms, confessing the problem, confessing the circumstances, confessing the pain, confessing. And you confess a pain and you say, oh, my arthritis. Oh, my aching back. Oh, my. You already established the law. When you say my, you claimed it. It's yours. You can never talk about anything 
that has no business in your body. And, uh, and now I remember what I was going to say. When, when, when something like that happens to me, I immediately confess, Satan, you're a liar. You have no power or dominion in my body. I don't give you permission to attack my body. I don't give you permission to destroy my body. By his stripes, I am healed. So, so that's using word. So when you have faith, you're saying that you believe God's word. And when you act in faith on the word, you are acting as if God's word is true. You have to act as if the word is true. And this morning, my own illustration, I acted as if the word is true because I got up, got dressed, showered, came here, and I'm standing here teaching. I acted as if what I said was true. That's what acting on the word is all about. It's one thing to know it. It's one thing to even say it. It's the application. And we're going to talk about application today. Now, faith is so important because it's faith in the word. Uh, And this brings us to another reason that we study the word in the Bible, because this study gives us knowledge of the word that we absolutely need in order to develop strong faith. The word teaches us that we walk by faith and not by sight and that the just shall live by his faith. We also know from Romans 12, 3, and I do want you to go to this scripture, Romans 12, 3. It's a familiar one, but I want you to see it. And the reason I want you to see it is that so many times you hear Christians say, if I only had faith, if I only had enough faith and so forth. And this scripture really answers that. It's Romans 12, verse 3, where it says, it says something else, but, but the point in that scripture, if you read it, it says, it talks about not thinking more highly of, of, of yourself than you should be and, and so on. And then let me just say this. It doesn't say don't think highly of yourself. We are to think highly of ourselves. We should think, we're God's children. We should think highly of ourselves. It says don't think more highly of yourself uh, than, you, than you should. Don't have, as I have quoted uh, uh, Pat Riley's book, The Disease of Me. Don't have the disease of me. Or as I say, don't have eye strain. It's all about I, all about me, and so forth and so on. So Romans 12, 3 says this. God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. So we all have the measure of faith. And while we all start with the same measure of faith, each person has a responsibility to develop or grow or make stronger his or her faith. And how? By using it. No one can do this for you. You have to do it yourself. So the question is this, how do I develop faith for particular things as in matters of, as we were just talking about, matters of health and wealth and success? The answer is contained in this very reason we study the word. And that expression is in Romans 10, 17, which you know. And if you have to go to Romans 10, 17, then you have not been coming to this church. Romans 10, 17, which says, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So how do we develop faith? By hearing the word. We study the word because it is by hearing this word that we develop faith in and for what we hear. It is important to know, and I said it early, but I'm going to state it a couple of times now. Faith cannot be developed without knowledge. Faith cannot, you need to write this down if you're, if you're writing. Now, I know people have tablets and so forth and so on, but write it in your mind anyway. Faith cannot be developed without knowledge. Now, 
You see this very clearly in the world. The world knows this. The world, the world studies the Bible and then he apply, it applies what it sees in the Bible that works and it applies to world situations. You see this very clearly in companies in the way in which they promote their product. They do it by advertising. They advertise on television. They advertise on radio, on billboards, on Facebook and other social media platforms. And they generate what they call word of mouth. They'll have a friend and family, a friends and family promotion and so forth. So they know that word of mouth is the best promotion of all. Through advertising, you gain knowledge of the product and how it's used and its advantages. And that's why you develop a faith for using that product. That's in the word. Now, the advertising, as I just said, can come by word of mouth from a friend or family member who has used the product and endorses the product and they do it by passing it on to you or the information about it on to you. Word of mouth advertising is actually the most effective. You see, advertising used, I think, to the point of detriment to us all in the nonstop stop advertising for prescription medications. I mean, every other medication is for this pill or that pill and so forth. And the point is we're looking at what it says the pill will do. The one plus it'll do. It'll stop your headache for a moment, but then it will do X, Y, Z, 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 constipation, diarrhea, <laughs> loss of appetite. And then some end up and they'd say it very quietly and premature death. These, these things, these, but, it, and it says speak to your physician about it. And so we go to the doctor's office and say, you know, Nothing has worked for me so far, but on television, it says that uh, this particular medication will solve my problems and you, you promote it. And of course, the doctors are promoting it too because that's part of the medical healthcare system in this country, which is so bad. It's based entirely too much on money and on selling prescription medication. Uh, it is absolutely absolutely horrible to think that we live in the most advanced nation in the world and yet have one of the worst health care delivery systems in the world. We're not even rated up in the top six or seven, if I'm not mistaken, the last time I looked. We have, I mean, uh, Cuba has a better uh, medical delivery uh, rating than we do. And here we have all of this money, but it's all being jacked up the wrong way in terms of what it should be. So anyway, it's talking about developing faith for what you hear. So you develop faith for salvation in the beginning, for prosperity, for healing, for peace of mind, for example, upon hearing these things. And that's why we teach on these and many other topics here at Crenshaw Christian Center. So the steps are number one, knowledge. Number two, faith in the knowledge that you hear. That is faith in the word that you hear. And then three, the application of this word to your life. Now, there are so many other reasons we should study the word, but I'm going to set those aside for now. I've already given us five or six or seven because I'm going to turn now to application. This is a good point to segue into applying the word uh, to our life because that's the important thing. In the final analysis, as I said already, you can know every single word in the Bible and you can have faith in them. But if you don't act on it, if you don't apply it to your life, it's going to do you very little good. 
So in terms of applying the word to your life, I have to deal with a question right up front. And that is this, because I've heard this discussed by other uh, religious teachers and it's been written about over and over again. It says whether or not the Bible really contains a prescription for daily living and whether it can be applied to today's problems since it was written some 2000 years ago. Things are different. People will say we have different circumstances. Obviously, we have different technology and so on. We have different information. Does what was written 2,000 years ago apply to us today in our situation? And so I want to deal with that uh, uh, as we proceed in terms of application. Some actually argue that the word doesn't apply uh, because of its dated situation. And others will say adamantly that it certainly is not a prescription for how to live your life. Now, we disagree with that here at Crenshaw Christian Center. And I want to point out that those who express the belief that the Bible does not apply to life situations today, they are not aware of the true nature of God. And and in fact, they're not aware of the true nature of man. And by that, I mean this. The reason the word applies as much today as it did then is because and it's a big word and you've heard of it. It's the immutability of God. Immutable means changeless, changeless. God does not change. God does not change. And by man's nature, all we have to do is look at history and know that human behavior does not change. It has not changed. We have developed, I I used to say in in, in giving motivational talks that we have landed a man on the moon. We've gone around the world in less than 80 days. And yet we have not learned the simple process of getting along with one another. (laughs) Human behavior has not changed. People are still at war with one another. Nations are at war. And if they're not at war, actually, they're at war verbally and so forth. But people are actually at war. People are fighting just as they did. People are stealing, killing, killing. That's a new word, killing. (laughs) All the things that they did 2,000 years ago. Now, I want us to consider briefly the immutability or changeless nature of God. Because you need to know why the word applies today. It is because God is changeless. So let's look at some scripture. Uh, go to Malachi 3.6. Now, we usually go to Malachi when we're talking about giving and tithes and offering, but go to Malachi. And Malachi is right before Matthew, by the way, uh, in the Bible. But I want you to see this because this is God speaking to us. Malachi 3.6. Are you there? God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. Now, another scripture I want you to look at is Isaiah 46, 9. Isaiah 46, 9. Write it down. I'm going to go ahead and quote it. God says here, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And it goes on to say in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, God sees everything at one time. And, and I'll soon 
tell you why he's able to do this. Now, go to this scripture, because, and I do want you, and I'll give you a chance to get here. Go to James chapter, chapter 1, verse 17. James, back there with Revelations. It's James, Peter, John, before you get to Revelations. But you need to see this. This is one that, uh, that you know, but you need to see what is said here. James 1, 17. God's immutability is declared here by James, who states this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. The Father of lights, of course, is God, with whom, this is what you need to see, there is no variation or shadow of turning. No variation or shadow of turning simply means that God does not change. He's unchangeable. Now, we also know that Father God and the Son Jesus are one and the same. Uh, and Elder Nate was talking about this today in uh, discipleship training. And we see the immutability or the changeless nature both stated in Hebrews 13.8. I do want you to take a look at that. Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8. Here it's declared, it's very simple. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, after stating what the word says about this, you need to know that there's some practical reasons why God does not change, and it's important to understand that before we proceed to the application of his changeless word. First, for God to change, we would have to assign some point of time where he went from A to B, where he changed. We would have to put God in time. What do we know about God? He's outside of time. He's not in time. There is no time with God. He's outside of time. So that's important for us to know. Uh, look at Psalm 33, 11. Psalm 33, 11 says this, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. And you're in Psalms, go to Psalm 41, verse 13, which says this, blessed be the Lord of God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, God exists from everlasting to everlasting, which has what? No beginning and no end. Now, this is one that you really need to look at and be one that you note. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy, they're all important, but I want you to especially note 2 Timothy 1, 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It says this. It says, who, the who is God. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before time began. So he did this before time began. So he's not in time. So I wanted you to know this. God's purpose and action was established before time began. Now, second reason why God does not change is because God is perfect. His perfection. So if you're perfect, <laughs> As you almost hear some people say, I'm so perfect, I don't need to change. But God is perfect. So if he's perfect, why would he change? You only change when some new information comes forth that 
suggests that there's a change that's needed. And I'll talk about this in a little bit. But in the meantime, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Matthew, 45, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. If anybody knows the nature of the father, it's Jesus, the son. Now, the apostle Paul speaks of the perfect will of God in Romans 12, 2. We were just in Romans 12, 3 a minute ago. Speaks of the perfect will of God in Romans 12, 2. In Romans 12, 2, he says this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will is perfect. Now, this next one I want you to see. Go to Deuteronomy 32, chapter 32, verse 4. I want you to see this one. Because if you don't see this, you would think that it was made up. Because it is something that we can relate to, a very prominent actor. What does Deuteronomy 32, 4 says? It declares, he, meaning God, is the rock. So the rock is God. Now, who is the rock? That's Dwayne, that's Dwayne Johnson, isn't it? I could see him going to this scripture and saying, wait a minute, I'm God. Anyway, the whole message here says, he, God is a rock, his work is perfect. Now, one could almost think that uh, the rock is perfect because he turns out a movie, it seems, every week and a half. <laughs> Unbelievable. You've got to have some kind of, 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 of extraterrestrial strength in order to do that. Now, seriously, let's go to one additional reason why God does not change, and that is because he knows everything. God is omniscient. And omniscience, we know, simply means that he knows everything. We know that that's one of the qualities of God. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing, and, and so on. And um, omnipresent, meaning everywhere. Now, he doesn't change because he knows everything. And as I said earlier, you change when some in new information is introduced that uh, suggests that you ought to change from this to that. But since God already knows everything from the beginning, there's nothing known. That's what it is. There's nothing that has been known. There's nothing that is known. There's nothing that will be known that God doesn't know already. So there will be no reason for him to change because he knows everything. There's nothing that you could introduce to him that would make him need to change. So Numbers 23, 19 subs, sums up the changeless nature of God this way. And this is a scripture that you're familiar with. Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Repent means change. Has he said, continuing the scripture, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So, this is the changes in nature of God. So what was written 2,000 years ago is good and applicable, is applicable to us today. So we know that God does not change. I also stated that the reason the word is applicable, applicable is, I think I need to drink some water, applicable 
is because human behavior does not change. And how do we know this? We see down through history. Man's behavior has not changed. It almost seems as if it gets worse. It, it only seems that it gets worse because he's able to do more damage today than he was able to do yesterday. Man's human nature does not change. And you will find that the Bible deals with everything, every human condition that you can think of. It's actually in the Bible. It's something that Dr. Betty and I say all the time, but it's true. It's true. All the themes dealing with human behavior that we see in books, novels, movies, television, and psychological studies today, we see them all in the Bible. In fact, that's where they get them from. There's no theme that you will find in any novel that is not exhibited in the Bible in terms of human behavior. For example, and these are the ones, I don't know if I gave these to you earlier, but these are the ones that I came up with off the top of my head that are dealt with in the Bible. Life, death, murder, suicide, sickness, healing, poverty, wealth. I don't expect you to write all these down. You can get the tape. Wealth, ambition, arrogance, pride, war, peace, success, failure, procrastination, envy, jealousy, work, laziness, hatred, charity, giving, integrity, diligence, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, focus, vision, planning, the family, marriage, adultery, fear, worry, anxiety, thinking, speaking, suffering, disobedience, uh, I don't know if I said stealing already, stealing, making mistakes, bad judgments, sin, honor, dishonor, spiritual things, and earthly things. Now, that doesn't cover everything, but that covers a lot. The Bible speaks to all of these and every other topic involving hum human behavior that you can think of. Uh, and you, you do need to turn here. Ecclesiastes 1, 9. First chapter, verse 9. Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs. I'll give you a chance to get there. And you know, and you know basically this scripture, but it supports what I just said. Ecclesiastes Chapter one, verse nine, sums up this whole array of things this way. It says, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Uh, this was true when Ecclesiastes was written. It's true today. There's no th new thing under the sun. Technology changes. We make improvements in how we live. We make improvements in terms of our work situation. We make improvements in the way in which we travel and get around and so forth. But basic human nature has not changed. It is the same. So the word in the Bible definitely speaks to us humans today. And that is why we're told that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And this is why James 1, and I quoted it in the prayer this morning, says, James 1.22 says, be, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Now, to be a doer of the word means to apply the word to your life and circumstances. So I'm going to approach this this way. There are different ways you can approach to how you apply the word to your circumstances, but I'm going to look at it in broad scopes and you'll see where I'm going. God does not change. 
So we know that his love, his purposes, his gifts, his commands, his exhortations, his promises, his warnings, and his gifts, to mention just some aspects, do not change. The Bible is full of of his love, purposes, gifts, commands, exhortations, warnings, and gifts that really are there for us to apply to our lives. Now, up front, I will tell you what you should do with each one. For his love, you should embrace his love. His purposes, you should understand his purposes. His commands, that's simple. Obey his commands. Exhortations, exhortations, that's encouragement. We should follow his exhortations. Warnings, we should heed his warnings. The word has many examples of warnings. I'm going to go over a certain number of all of these in the message as we proceed, but I just want to give you these main headings, and I may come up with some more headings as, as, as we go. His promises. God's precious promises. Believe and receive them. His gifts. Believe and accept them. That's what we should do. In studying the word of God in the Bible, we find in these writings his clear expression of love, and that's his love for us, by the way, in the world. We find his divine purposes stated. We find his direct warnings to us. We find his pointed exhortations to encourage us and incite us to continue to move forward. We find his precious promises and his manifold gifts. These acts of God written some 2,000 years ago are all for us today. As Romans 15, 4 declares, and we went to that before, Romans 15, 4. You can mark it down. That was in lesson number one. Romans 15, 4 says this. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, applying this, that we should learn, let's look at the first category. And let's look at the love of God. And I am starting with the love of God because everything else emanates from his love. His commands, his warnings, his gifts, his promises all emanate from his love. So we're going to start with his love. Not with his love. I'm not going to give you all of the scriptures that, that, uh, that talk about his love. I'm going to give you some of the key ones. But let's start with Jeremiah 31.3. Jeremiah 31.3. Here in Jeremiah 31.3, this is the Lord speaking. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, the important thing is that his love for us is everlasting. We see that Jeremiah is part of the Old Testament. And there are many scriptures in the Old Testament that express God's love. Let me give you one more from the Old Testament. This is it. it and there's so many, by the way, they're, 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 they're literally dozens and dozens, in fact, hundreds. But let's look at these moving words of Ezekiel, and you'll see why I chose it. I'll give you a chance to get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're going to look at verses 26, 27. I'll give you a chance to get there. Ezekiel is somewhere up there near Jeremiah. and uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. When you have it, say you have it. Okay, this is God speaking. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Those are his commands. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Let me read this again. It's God speaking. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of of flesh. This is Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, my commands, and you will keep my judgments, also commands, and do them. Now here, I'm reminded of the statement from St. Augustine, the Catholic St. Augustine, St. Aquinas, St. Augustine. You former Catholics know who I'm talking about. St. Augustine said this, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. As we study the New Testament and compare it with the Old, we'll see more of God's love for us revealed. Because as Christians, it all begins with his expression of love for us. And you see this love set in motion in Genesis, after, and you don't hear this too much, but, but it's true. We know what happened in Genesis with the fall and so forth. But do you know that starting with chapter three, maybe in part of chapter two, chapter th- from chapter three in Genesis to the rest of the Bible, it's dealing with God reconciling us back to him, bringing us back in restoration, reestablishing dominion where we have dominion. His plan of redemption for us is what the whole Bible is about once you leave the second and certainly the third chapter of Genesis. You hardly ever hear that spoken, but it's true. And he said, and I've discussed some of his plans that he does in in, in Genesis. Remember, I talked about him looking for a vehicle to get back into the earth. And he he, he finds, he uses Abraham, he he uses uh, Noah to do certain things and so forth and so on. Anyway, this is all part of his redemptive plan and so on. so we see God's love for humanity begin to unfold as early as this, as he sets in motion his plan for redemption after Adam's fall in the garden. This is fulfilled through the salvation and redemptive work of Christ Jesus that we see in our New Testament. Everything that comes from God is love because we know that God is love. One John Chapter four, verse eight. One John, chapter four, verse eight tells us, he who does not love does not know, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love, so everything he does is motivated by love and is made in and of love. And of course, we see this in the classic John 3.16, which you all can quote by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is love that is, that you really can't put into words. It's ineffable, as they say. You can't really find the words to describe that kind of word, that kind of love. God's great love is revealed and demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ. 
He demonstrates his love through us, through the actions that he takes through Jesus Christ. And of course, later through the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at some of this described in Romans chapter five, verses six through eight, Romans five, six through eight. We're talking about God's love. We're talking about why we study the Bible today. And I'm saying that one of the reasons we study the Bible today in terms of applying the word to our life is that we want to see God's expressions of love for us because you can take comfort in this love. So Romans chapter five, verse six and eight. Verse six says this, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was God's plan. Seven, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. To die. Scarcely for a righteous man uh, will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Eight, but God demonstrates his own love towards us toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's his great love for us. By love through Christ Jesus, we are brought into God's family. And we see this in 1 John 3, 1. Little John again in the back, next to Revelations. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Behold, which means look, pay attention to this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Now, speaking of connecting scriptures, I connect this to Romans 8, 17, and it almost looks like it's a continuation of the statement. Go to Romans 8, 17. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Romans 8, 17 picks this right up and says, And if children... Then heirs, joint heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. His love has given us heirship. Joint heir with Jesus. We're an heir of God. So in the words of Psalm 136.26, Psalm 136.26, you can write it down. We should give thanks to God, to the God of heaven. We should give thanks to the God of heaven for his mercy, his love, endures forever. And of course, Jeremiah 31, three, which we already looked at, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This everlasting love of God for us has been described expansively by Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 38. You were in Romans a minute ago. You were in chapter eight. Uh, just go to verses 38 and 39. Romans 8, 38, 39. And listen to this. This is how strong the love of God is. Verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me. And you should, I put me there, but it says us, but you, you should put me there or put your name there. Separate me from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing, I mean, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So don't ever tell any, don't, don't ever tell, don't ever let anybody tell you that God doesn't love you because you did this, you did that, or you are this, or you are that, and so forth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So important to know this. 
Now, while God's love for us is revealed through Christ Jesus, his love has been poured into us through the Holy Spirit. I just wanted to add that too. Reveal through Christ Jesus, poured into us by the Holy Spirit. And we see this expressed here in Romans, back up to Romans chapter five, verse, and we're gonna look at verse two through five. This is the pouring of God's love into us by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter five, and we're gonna look at verses two and five. Verse two says this, through whom and whom is God also, uh, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse three, and not only that, but we are, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Four, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Five, verse five, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by whom? The Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's one of God's gifts given to us, which I'll talk about when I come to the discussion of gifts. Ultimately, and this is something that you may not hear that often, ultimately the greatest gift God has given to us is a gift that he himself is. You know, Meister Eckert says that with all of his giving, he's only trying to give us the gift that he himself is. Now, let me explain it this way. God has given us himself in that we were made in his image and likeness. He has made us to be like him and to act like him. And almost nothing states this more clearly than Psalm 8. And and let's look at this. This will be our last scripture today. Psalm 8. And let's look at these familiar verses. God gives himself to us. Psalm 8 verse 3. Three says this, when I consider your heavens, speaking of God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. Five, what is man that you are mindful of him and a son of man that you visit him? Five, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Six, for you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's giving us himself. Same kind of powers he has. Everything is under God's feet. Everything is under our feet and so forth. Now, go back to verse five where it says, for you have made him a little lower than the angels. I want to leave you with this. In the original text, and you may have heard this explained before, the word used for angels here is Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M. Well, you probably know from the teachings that you've gotten here that Elohim means what? Means God. So they really should read, you have made us a little lower than God. And that's true. We are, I like to say, we're many gods, M-I-N-I, many gods, so forth. And you have put all things under our feet. With our God-like dominion, all things have been put under our feet. All means all, and therefore nothing should reign over us. No sickness, no poverty, no worry, no fear, no bad habits, No drinking, no smoking. It shouldn't reign over us. It shouldn't have dominion over us. It's all been set under our feet. No works of the enemy should reign over us. This is because of the great love love God has for us and has expressed for us. On this, we will end today, but we'll pick this up when we come back.
to this next time. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.